This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. So this is Evangelical Fatherhood and Motherhood. Are you all in the right room? Am I in the right room? Um, How do we raise our children? How do we seize the promises of God for them without harming or neglecting them through presumption? What do we expect of our sons and daughters? How do we work to bring about fruit, repentance, and joy in the lives of future generations? So what passages do you think of when when we talk about promises about our children? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's from Proverbs. We'll look at that in a little bit. Yes, yes, and that's the the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is coming from uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he's quoting the prophet Joel, who says this. It will come about after this. that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And so Peter quotes Joel, Joel's prophecy, in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching. And he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so the people, as he preached, it says that the people were pierced to the heart, And they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and those who are far off, whoever the Lord will call, right? And Joel had said it will be to the nations, it will be to your sons and daughters, right? And so God is pleased, you see in the scriptures that God is pleased to uh, birth spiritual children, we've been hearing about the new birth, birth spiritual children in the context of believing families. That's his pleasure to do. So how how do we as believing parents lay hold of those promises of God? How is it acted? How does it, how does it come to be? Well, I'm interested in energy technology. Is anybody else interested in energy technology? Okay, me and Chris, that's it. You people are not green, okay? And so I like the idea of solar panels. I like the idea of wind turbines. I like the idea of these chemical catalysts. Have you guys read about this thing, the cube that they're developing? 
that is, you know, just the size of a dishwasher. It sits in your house and produces all your energy for your house, right? You feed it natural gas and it turns it into something, right? Totally green, but it's just not cost effective yet. How can I acquire green technology or new technology? It's cost prohibitive. It isn't cost effective yet to do it. It's cost prohibitive. So how can I acquire it? Well, I got to reading about uh, uh, people who would um, buy green technology from the grid. And so what you can do if you work, if you're with Duke Energy, as Annie and I are in our house, we have a company called Duke Energy, and if you pay two more cents a kilowatt hour, you can buy green energy from the grid, right? And so, what if I decided to cut out the middleman, right, in a way? Because here's the reality. They're sending the green energy to the grid. In other words, on the grid you have the nuclear power plant and you have the coal generated power plant, you have the, the wind farm and you have the solar panel farm, right? They're all on the grid. And they're all putting all their energy into the same line. And that's the very transmission line that comes to my house. So what if I cut out the middleman? What I'll do is I'll just go speak to my electric meter. And I'll say to my electric meter, I want you to do this for me. Whenever the energy's coming by, just get the green stuff. Don't get the stuff from the coal plants and don't get the stuff from the, from the nuclear plants. Just get the wind turbine plants and the, and the uh, photocell plants because I want to use green energy in my house and I want to tell people that I'm conscientious. <laughs> like those companies that pay the extra money to supposedly get the green stuff, right? Well, of course, it's a joke because there's no cost to me. I didn't buy any solar panels. I didn't buy a wind turbine. I didn't even go to the trouble of paying the extra two cents a kilowatt hour for my energy that came into my house. And so I've basically said that I would lay claim to the energy without any real effort, just verbally. I make a verbal claim to the energy that's there. Now you probably see where I'm going with this. This is how some of us would seek the blessings of God and promises for our children. We stake our claims verbally. I claim the promises for my children and then follow our claims with neglect. After all, there are children right? And so we should just have it without any action on our part, without any expense that we have to lay out, like me getting green energy by just saying it to my, and so I can tell people now when they come to my house, well, I, my house is green. It's red, actually, if you've seen it, but, but it's green. But we lay claim to our children in this way. And so we say, well, I've had them baptized, or I've had them dedicated, or neither, or both. Or with some uttered superiority, I've had them christened. My children were christened. And then we go home from the special service, and we have a special meal, and we proceed from that point on to ignore our children's spiritual care for the rest of their lives. 
but we've, we've claimed the promise of God. You understand? And so, what is the work that we're supposed to do? What's involved, really, in our children's spiritual nurture? Well, somebody said, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. So the operative word there is train, train. It means that we have to be involved. It means that we have to work. And then I want to take you to a, another verse, actually two more verses, one in Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that it, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, which is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. For he, does not wrong, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. All right, keep that in mind. We had, there were six categories of people listed there. I'm going to come back to them in a few minutes. Then 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 5, Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, verse 2, My beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So Paul hearkens back to his heritage, Right? As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So you see again, Paul's just, he harkens back to his heritage and then he talks about Timothy's heritage and he turns Timothy back to his heritage as well, right? And so what's in this? Well, you have Timothy's sincere faith, and you have the passage in Colossians, and it speaks about six different categories. So there's wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. But you can say that that's just a placeholder, because would you say that it ends there? Wouldn't there be an end, etc.? Is there a category in which we are not supposed to be demonstrating our faith? Is there a category of existence? Anthony, you work as a chef. Does it not apply to you as a chef? Are you supposed to demonstrate your faith as you work as a chef? Absolutely. Eric, you teach uh, economics. voodoo economics. <laughs> I was thinking of the adjectives. I knew what you did. Okay. And so do you have to be a Christian as you teach economics? You're not allowed to be exempt in that role that you play in life. Well, so the list should go on, but the thing that's interesting is everybody there is expected to have what Timothy has, and that is a sincere faith. 
and that includes the children that are being spoken to. And so in this conference, we have the presumption that there is a new birth expected of those who follow Jesus Christ. And so we, can, we could uh, get into the process and talking about it. It has been talked about in the, in the plenary session so far, but the reality of the new birth is, is foundational to being evangelical, that we must be born again. And we've heard that particularly spoken of this morning. And so that also includes our children. And so now we have the work that we do because our children and the work of our children, whether, you know, I had a father say to me uh, last night, I think he had his five children. He said, I think one of my children is born again. Or I don't think he used that word, right? And so does that, is that difficult for you to process? I bet it is. And so he said, I think one of my children is saved. I think one of them is converted. And they're all young, right? That's an incredible profession to take. Okay, okay. Are you that father? Yeah. Okay. He said, I, I think one of my children has a credible profession of faith. I didn't want to say who you were. Okay. <laughs> my bad father. <laughs> okay, now, so you hear that and you say, oh, well, but what is that statement other than a, a parent who's, who's living with a concern to tend the spiritual realities of his home? And you can't just turn around and say, okay, see you when you're 19, uh, spiritually that is, you know, and just ignore the, the, the upbringing of your children and then to ignore the signs, the realities, the applications of the word, all the things that you're supposed to do for them when they're children and as they grow. And so there's a work that we're supposed to do. It's the foundation of the Christian home. It's the gospel. Our, our homes should be physically and emotionally safe for our children. That's certainly true. But more than that, they should provide a spiritual base. You know, when kids play games, you guys remember playing games when you were kids? We don't play them anymore. Although uh, somebody's son came up to me last night and he just met me to his memory last night. Right? Actually, it might have been the first time I'd ever met him. It was your son. And his name is Maxwell. And my name, I go by Max. My middle name is Max. And so he's, he has a bond with me now. So I'm talking with somebody and I'm on this chair and I'm talking to somebody and all of a sudden some kid just goes flying into me. Boom! right and he says do you want to play tag <laughs> in a way I do in another way I'm too old and tired right and so you remember when you were kids and you'd play games and there was a place you would go that was what was it called? It was a place where you would go that you were safe during the contest. What'd you call it? Base. base. Everybody I ask say base, right? So all kids know this concept of base. And there's where they're safe to rest and reconnoiter until they want to go out there again and challenge the competition, right? Well, our work 
with our children is to see them have a sincere living faith. We work to gospel them. We work to see them have a sincere living faith as Paul said he saw in Timothy. And this is our work with them from beginning to end. And this, is, this can only happen if our homes are in some aspect a place of spiritual safety, a base. A place where they can observe, reconnoiter, and be safe, but also be instructed and taught and be given the things that they need to be given so that at the time when God, by His grace, we pray will save them, it will just be smooth because they'll say, oh, I understand. I was talking to a 10-year-old from our church about his soul, and he was confessing sin to me. And I would, as I would talk to him, he would, he would talk to me about answers from the catechism. He knew catechism answers. But it was like this place of, of the, the slinky, right? You got the catechism answer, and then you got the sin. And what are you doing with that spot but trying to get him to see the connection between the two? Because the catechism's worthless unless he sees that it's connected to him spiritually. And so I thought at that moment, I, he was sincere about his understanding of the sin, I believe. And I think at that moment, he started to see how the catechism had purchase in his life. But it's just a representation, a representative place for all the work we do as parents with our children to make our homes gospeling homes, to make them a safe base spiritually. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's from Romans 1, 16. How do you communicate the gospel in the culture of your home? Do you know that your home has a culture? I heard somebody talking about this recently. And, and so they, there was a husband and wife, and they were talking about their home. And the husband said, I think we should do this. And the wife said, if we do that, it will change the culture of our home. And the husband said, well, maybe the culture of our home needs to change. You see, all of our homes have, cult, have a culture. They all have something. Uh, they all have a reality, an attending reality, a, 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 a personality, a presence. They all do things, whether good or bad, and both usually, right? But our work as parents is to create, create such a culture for our children that they, will, that they will be soaking in, marinating in the gospel, in all of its beauty, in all of its greatness, from the, the reality of depravity to the substitutionary atonement. All of these things that we're able to bring to the children, and, and it's work. Why? Because you have to explain uh, imputed righteousness to your eight-year-old. Can you do it? Bob the Builder? Yes, I can. <laughs> right? You have to do this. This is what we do in our homes. Are you aware that your home has a culture? Is the gospel evident there? Can you, can you, can you articulate the culture of your home? And can you tell people how the gospel is there in that culture? Many of us have this unspoken saying in our homes, and the unspoken saying is, that goes without saying. Have you ever heard somebody say, that goes without saying? 
that's the person that's looking at the chalkboard until their kid's 19, right? It doesn't even go without saying that you should say that, you shouldn't say that goes without saying. You have to say that. It doesn't go without saying, okay? Everything has to be said. That goes without saying is not true. I was talking with my mother one time about the uh, way my nieces were dressing. So it'd be her granddaughters. And I said, Mom, have you ever thought about talking to them? Well, they, they, I, I shouldn't have to say that. I shouldn't have to say anything to them about that. They shouldn't, they know. And you realize that my mother is not pleased with the uh, immodest dress. Thank you, my wife thinks my thoughts. She's, she's not pleased with the immodest dress, but she's, she's in this position where she doesn't feel like it's right for her culturally in the home or as a grandma to bring it up. But is it right? Yes. Absolutely right. And so we can't have that as a reality. The Bible says faith comes by hearing. Well, faith comes to your children by hearing. And it's, it's a whole lot of things that they hear that you don't know what's going to be the trigger that will help them in their, in their movement toward Jesus Christ, right? And hearing comes by the Word of God. And so you have to have the Word of God in the equation. You have to be giving them the Word of God and teaching them the Word of God. They need to hear you speak. You think, well, okay, well, faith, that, those passages in Romans, faith comes by hearing. Paul says, we believe, therefore we speak. Well, that's Paul, that's the apostles, that's preachers, but that's not parents. Wrong. Wrong. It is parents. You have to speak the word of God to your children. So Lloyd-Jones, and I would, I would ask you to read, if you haven't, the book, What is an Evangelical? In his first chapter, he kind of structures it around um, the first verses of the book of Jude, where Jude says that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother to James, to those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Well, you're actually teaching your children truth, a specific truth, not a gospel. You don't want your children to know a gospel. You want your children to know the gospel the gospel that was handed down to the saints, the gospel that we contend for, the faith we contend for. And so you have to be versed in it yourselves. You have to get smart about what the Bible says about salvation, what, about, uh, about uh, evangelism. You have to get smart about the, the doctrines surrounding the gospel. So I was, uh, I was recently at a, a wedding and I thought to myself, I don't think this pastor, if I asked him to communicate to um, somebody who was seeking God, I'm not sure he could actually communicate what it means for us to be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, moms, can you explain to your children in a way that they'll understand how God justifies us? Now, if you can't, I'm not saying that to, to pound on you. I'm saying that because 
If you can't, then you need to work it out to try to figure it out. Because if you can, if you can teach your children through the ways of, of uh, through the everyday activities of their lives and through things that they see with the time that you have with them and their actions and other people's actions, if you can teach your children the doctrine of justification, when they come to the place where God opens up their hearts, oh yeah, I've known this all along. It's like the 10-year-old that's talking to me about his sin. I know this. That makes sense. This end of the slinky is connected to that end of the slinky. And they see the connection between the two. And it's a wonderful thing. But our homes need to be places for that. So how do we contend for the faith in our homes? How do we contend for and with our children? How do we make our homes environments of gospel culture? And I have uh, seven different things I want to bring. Okay? Thanks for your patience. One, education and the gospel. Education and the gospel. I'm not going to go into any of these to your satisfaction, finally, just so you know, because they're huge, 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 deep, deep wells of controversy. All right? So education and the gospel. The first thing I want to say about education and the gospel is that there's no magic formula. There's no magic formula. Um, your kids won't be educated better in the gospel if you don't give them refined sugar. Okay? Um, what they eat is not unimportant. But don't think that there's some kind of silver bullet you know the term silver bullet, some kind of magical formula in food. There isn't. I mean, you want to have the right nutrition so that you don't die. Okay, that's a biggie, just, just saying. You want to stay alive, you want your children to stay alive, that means you can't poison them. Okay, I'll give you the big parameters. Okay, <laughs> you can't poison them, and you have to give them the things they need for their bodies to grow and develop. Those are the big parameters, right? And in between there is everything from Chicken McNuggets to uh, uh, roasted Brussels sprouts, okay? Which can be yummy if they're covered in bacon. <laughs> so diet isn't a magical formula in their education. Your educational philosophy isn't a magical formula. You can be a classical education person, you can be a great books person, uh, you can be an uneducated person. Where would you go to say that? How about the New Testament? When they noted that these men were unlearned, ordinary, stupid hedge. <laughs> right? But they knew the gospel. They had been saved from their sins. They were useful to God. Right? And so educational philosophies, there's every kind of educational philosophies, and we think, well, if I give them the right food, they'll know the gospel, if, and they'll, they'll, they'll learn it better. If I give them the right education, if I have the right philosophy, they read the right books. You know, books can be great, and, you know, Latin can be great, and 
lots of things can be great, and but the gospel, the gospel can be given in all kinds of contexts, and it's not limited to any of those things. Okay, and so there's no magic bullet in any of the education things. Um, there are some things, though. Um, well, I'll get to them in a minute. How about uh, essential oils? Will my children will my children learn better if I give them essential oils or some kind of home, other homeopathic treatment? You know, there is a recipe in the Bible, a homeopathic type recipe in the Bible, but I don't ever see moms do it. No, that's that's in there, right? Um, Two are forbidden. But, but uh, one of them that I can think of is Jesus reaches down and he gets some clay and he spits in it and then he rubs it and makes mud and then he splats it on the guy's eye. I don't ever see moms doing that. I don't ever see them doing it. And my whole point in that statement is to say to you, this stuff ain't going to do it. You understand? It's not going to make your children be able to understand. It's not the education. It's not going to, to uh, orient them properly to the gospel. People come to the gospel from every kind of food uh, diet. They come to the gospel from every kind of educational background. They come to the gospel with every kind of medical history. And God is not limited by any of them. And so if you see that, then you'll understand that your work is really not necessarily in any of those things. Of course, you have to feed your children. Of course, you have to educate your children. Of course, you want to take care of them physically, medically. But you need to see that that's not the secret. There isn't a silver bullet in those things. Secondly, under education, the book, the book, the book, the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. And your children have to know God's word. They absolutely have to know God's word. So Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so you realize that without revealing to your children what God has revealed about himself by giving them the Bible, you're going to fail. Now you'll fail in doing that. There's lots of systems and studies and devotionals and and ways and methods and on and on and on and on and on use them all I'm glad for you to any way that you can get your children to know God's word good you know record it while they're sleeping put earphones over their head so that they hear it subliminally all night long I don't care how you do it right but do it they have to know the Bible they have to know God's word it's only in that that they will hear who God is, who they are, and what needs to be done, right? And so they have to be, uh, as you have to be a person, an adult of the book, a parent of the book, your children have to become children of the book as well. Some practical helps. Have time of instruct, instruction, scripture, prayer. Do that. Do it on a set time. Do it however you can do it. Do it. Right? I grew up, I've said this before, in a family where we had devotions once a year on Christmas. And we read the Christmas story, 
and we uh, prayed the Lord's Prayer together. We had a prayer, a regular kind of extemporaneous prayer, and then the Lord's Prayer, right? And uh, that was Christmas. And that's pretty much all for the devotional time in my family. However, you'd say, well, that's a complete failure. But even that isn't a complete failure because while my father had no uh, uh, paradigm, if that's the right word, for understanding uh, catechisms and confessions, they weren't in that tradition at all. My father loved God's word and he loved the church. And so we were always taught to revere God's word and we were taught that the church was the most important place to be. There was never, and I'll get to priorities in a few minutes, and there was never a, a place where there was something to be above the church. So in our family, three pastors of the sons, my sister married a man who became a pastor. My brother was a, another brother was a superintendent of a Christian school seven children, five of them in full-time work at some point in Christian work. And we never had devotions. But we did have the Bible. You see what I'm saying? So you, look, you think about this and you think, oh, 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 but we're so bad at it. Yeah, you are. Okay. Keep at it. Keep at it. But, you, but there's a whole lot more to your instruction than just your devotional time, but have it. Teach your children how to argue a point, but not how to be argumentative. Okay? Teach them how to argue. Teach them, think, teach them the illogic of their, of their thinking, of their speech. Do it at the table. Do it when you're working together outside. Don't do it constantly so that they're exasperated and want to shoot themselves in the head. Do you understand? But do it regularly so that you know you're intentional about it. You're, you're creating an environment for them to grow and understand. Talk about real things that are difficult and uncomfortable, age appropriate, but do it. Listen, our kids are being foisted into a world where nobody understands anything age appropriate. And so they're hearing things all the time. So the bar's been lowered, 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 so much so that we have to be ahead of the game. So, for instance, when it comes to teaching your children about sex, you have to be very intentional. Have a time where you talk about sex. You'd be willing to say more about it that's true than the world could ever think of that's not true. So that there is absolutely no fear, desire, uh, temptation on your children's part to go hear it somewhere else. Not because you've been wrong or uh, titillating about how you've explained it to them, but because they feel secure in the fact that you're secure in sex. Okay? That's a placeholder, though, for any number of things where your children are going to be learning lies from the world. And you have to do the work of teaching them about real things that are difficult and uncomfortable for them to, to, un to understand. Teach them how to be both skeptical of history while at the same time not repeating the mistakes of others in it. Because there's things in, there are things in history that we need to be skeptical of, and this is from Lloyd-Jones. If you, you should hear Lloyd-Jones in this as I'm talking, because he's not talking about children, but it's a lot of what is an evangelical, okay? But your children have to understand history, otherwise they're just going to think you're making it all up. Oh. You're just, uh, you just, uh, you kind of fly by night, parent. You're making this all up. No. No, I understand 
how things were back then, last month, before you were 11, right? And so you just have to be able to help them to understand not to learn the same mistakes other people have made. And this, uh, this can be very recent mistakes. It doesn't have to be old history. It can be very recent mistakes. Have them give you a synopsis of each chapter of a book they're reading. You want some time to talk to your teenager, if you have one? This is a great thing to do. I only did it with my last child, and it's been very helpful because she'll come to me, and she likes to do this. Not all, your, all of your children will, but she likes to come to me and to tell me what she read. And I then have an opportunity to in interact with her about something other than about the petty relationship problem she's having with teenage girls, right? And so we talk about the book and it leads to other subjects. And then I don't have to read it. <laughs> well, if, uh, there's a book I always want to read, she can read it and then I can just hear the report. Actually, one book she read, I actually went back and read. I was so enjoying the, the reports I was getting. Make sure you provide a context for them to learn socially helpful and necessary skills. Uh, there's a lot of homeschooling going on in this room, right? There's a lot of protective homeschooling going on in this room. Homeschoolers don't learn how to wait in line. They don't learn how to ask permission. They don't learn how to defer to their superiors, and they don't even know who their superiors are. That's a general statement, but it's true. And I'm not opposed to you homeschooling. We've done it on and off ourselves. Amen. But know that that's true, and you've got to think about ways to get them to grow and to socialize to learn those appropriate behaviors. So that when they're in some later thing like you know, standing in line anywhere in their lives, they realize that they're the one that doesn't go until it's their turn, okay? Deference. Deference is a big problem that I see with homeschooled kids because they, they live in an environment where all of the parents, all of the children are all just, it's just this contained little group. And so everybody gets real cozy with that group. And, the, and so when they relate to other adults or people who they should understand as superior to them, you understand what I mean by superior? When they get into those situations, they just relate to them like, oh, it's, hey, Bob, good to see you. Hey, Ben, things all right? Uh, how's uh, the car running, you know? How can I help you these days? Well, Jimmy, you're five. <laughs> oh yeah, well, what does that matter? You can't reach the pedals. You understand, but it's, it's this reality that it's a placeholder for them knowing and understanding God. Understanding the, the submission in the Trinity itself. All kinds of things that are helpful about teaching your children those things. Now, all the things I said above about education, all, all are part of the following things as well, and I need to move quicker. So number two, socialization and the gospel. Two-year-olds, two-year-olds, have you noticed, if you've been around two-year-olds, they do influence one another, okay? So they socialize. 
But teenagers are a whole different story because peer pressure is so intense and conflicts arise in our children as teenagers judge us against our parent, our friend, their friends' parents. And, there's a, and they're going through the individuation process themselves. And so all of this stuff, teenagers always judge their parents when they're going through the individuation process. You're, all, you're going to get judged. If you haven't had teenagers yet, you're going to get judged. You don't have any control over it. You can't even say, don't judge me. It's going on in their head. You can't climb in there. You can't do anything. It's going to happen. You want to set things up good before the judgment day. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. Okay? You want to set things up and have done well. And so what? With our children, they judge us. And I'm going to quote somebody here named Reverend William Still, who is a uh, Church of Scotland pastor, the longest serving, I think, 56 years in the history of the Church of Scotland. He's now deceased. His ministry was very strong, very evangelical, very godly. Uh, not only that, but uh, three years ago, I think, his successor or his successor's su successor, uh, when the Church of Scotland decided to entertain ordaining homosexuals, this man said, I'm no longer with the Church of Scotland, but he didn't leave alone the entire church with the exception of just like a tiny smattering of people. The entire church left the Church of Scotland. And they ended up turning right around and renting their building back. You understand? But they're no longer part of the Church of Scotland. But that's, that's like two generations after the, the heart of his ministry, and that's how strong what he's left is. Right? So he's talking about the teenagers in his church, and he says, uh, and I'll quote him again in a few minutes on something else, but when children come to adolescent years, their training and childish Christian experience must be put to the acid test of decision. Adolescent means teenage. Acid test means acid test. Okay? When they come to their teenage years, their experience must be put to the acid test of decision. Now, he's not saying that we give the acid test. He's just saying it just happens. It's coming. It's what I just call judgment day, but it has so many more things connected to it, right? And so the acid test of experience, he says, it's one thing to confess Christ as a child at school, but another thing to confess him when manhood and womanhood have awakened and we are launched upon the wider world. How are we to tide young folk over their adolescent years. And he goes on to talk about this and the experiences they have and the results they have. But listen to me. The real test comes when the judgment day comes. And I, I don't, I'm not belittling the future judgment day for your sake, for understanding the day your children are individuating from you. That's because they're, they're in the acid bath at that moment. And there's ever so much more that's happening with them at that moment. And it's very, very intense. And so what are practical tips about socialization? Well, know yourself. That If your child comes to you, and they will, and they say, I want to do, I want to this, I want to do that, you better know yourself because you're going to find out that you're going to be threatened in many ways by what your child wants to do and what they say. You'll be threatened because you're insecure. You'll be threatened because you have sin in your life. You'll be threatened 
because you're afraid for them. There's all kinds of things that you'll be threatened by in that time. And you have to know yourself well enough to know how to deal with the, own in, the, the internal dialogue that's going on within you. And then in turn, be able to respond to your child in the most appropriate way you can. Okay? So get to know you. Get to know all about you. Okay, because it's that's going to be a reality when it comes on you. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, okay, some of you have teenagers, but most of you don't yet. Okay, so that's coming to you. It's a reality. Um, secondly, cultivate awareness of your children's friends. What are their friends like? We've had failures and successes in this in our family, and so our awarenesses of our children's of our children's friends have been good and bad. And we've repented of some, and we've worked hard for some, but the, but the, the, uh, the idea stands, cultivate an awareness of your children's friends, okay? Know who they are. Three, say no. Learn how to say. It's hard because once you say, all kinds of craziness can occur. Number four, say yes. Find places to say yes. Make sure you can say yes at times. And then explain no and explain yes when it's appropriate to. When you can educate your child appropriately, not when it's a matter of you submitting to their willfulness. Do you understand the difference? When it's appropriate to explain yes and no, explain yes and no. Explain yes because that's a wonderful time to help them understand no. All right? You'd never think to explain yes, would you? But that's very helpful. Uh, form parental alliances, conspiracy groups, if you will. Okay, and, and make these alliances helpful to one another as you talk about dealing with your children and how to, and how to uh, care for them and you know, conspire about what you're gonna do. We've done this, we've conspired, okay? And then also, and these aren't exhaustive lists, but then also, um, Take responsibility for other families through the gospel. If you're trying to make your home a gospeling home, here's an idea, care about Dan's family, to make Dan's family a gospeling home. Well, that means that you might have to go to Dan and say, you know, I've noticed this, and Dan, I'm concerned. And that's difficult to do when, when they're looking at you and thinking, who are you to talk? I've seen your kids, Jenna, right? And, and then you're thinking, well, when did they see my kids misbehave? <laughs> no, you're not. You're, you're always, we're always just immediately like condemned, you know. <laughs> you've seen them. I saw them too. <laughs> Don't try to get off the subject here. We're talking about your kids right now. <laughs> Recreation, the gospel, number three. Sports and priorities, entertainment and priorities, games, movies, dances, parties, etc. Can I, 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 can I? Why can't I, why can't I, why can't I? Okay, some of you aren't very far in your lives from having asked those questions, right? <laughs> you sow the wind, you get children yourself. So. 
Reverend Still, the same fellow, says this, it would be a terrible thing if someday it could be said that parents had led their children astray. Yet some parents are so anxious that their children should live life to the full that they tend to encourage or allow too many amusements. I would plead with parents to encourage their young folk to make the church the heart and center of their life. Yet it is doubtful whether they can coax them to do what they themselves fail to do. The maxim, don't do as I do, do as I say, has never carried weight with the young. If they do not follow their parents, whom are they to follow? In other words, it ain't going to fall far from the tree, right? Number four, prioritization and the gospel. Uh, Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose you this day who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's a place where he's saying you have a list of choices in your life, and it's not just this day. It is. It was. But it is ever after. And we are making choices and priorities for the Lord or against him constantly. And we have to teach our children that they are going to make choices and they are making choices and setting priorities in their lives even when they're very young. And you have to teach them and help them to understand that prioritization is a matter of constant choice. Always. Everything. Every day. There isn't a moment in a day hardly that you're not making choices unless you're unconscious. You know, you're making choices all the time. Number six, imitation in the gospel. Again, we read about uh, how our children are going to follow us. But the fact is that our children will imitate us. They will become products of their parents. And so to the extent that we direct our actions and activities, we're going to have huge influence on our children as they in, in turn will direct their activities and their priorities in life. And they will become imitators of us. So Paul, Paul actually says, um, in Hebrews, in Second in, in Thessalonians and in Hebrews, I just read Hebrews, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You want your children to imitate your faith and get further than you did. Be more godly than you ever attained at their age. And so have that as a goal, that you can say to your children, imitate my faith, and not be ashamed to say it. Um, lastly, um, and we've had to go quickly, lastly, uh, emancipation. When does it all end? When does it all end? Um, we, use, we use this uh, illustration with children of our homes here in the church when we're talking to families, especially when they get in teenage years. We say that when a child is born, they give it to the mother, it's at the mother's breast. Then the child grows older and it's toddling, it's up around the mom's knees. You know how children get behind their mother, you know, look at you like this. Monstrous thing, what are you doing? And then, uh, and then as they grow bigger, they're running around, but they're still keeping in proximity to mom who's home, right, base. And then they get a little bit bigger, they're, they're out on the playground, right? Dad has different interactions at different times with this, and depends on if it's a boy or girl, how the interactions are with fathers, you know, but, uh, and with mothers. 
But as time goes on, if you follow the illustration, you have, so Hanny, come on, help me. You have, if some of you have seen us do this before, but you have the reality of children, they're then walking beside you like this. And that's when they're going into junior high and high school age, and they'll hold your hand. Kimmy still holds my hand when we go to Walmart, but she doesn't know that she'll be doing that when she's 35. Right? <laughs> and so the reality is, though, is that as they're individuating from you, you want them to individuate. If they don't individuate from you, there should be only reason they have Down syndrome. But you don't want Down syndrome for your children, right? Some of you may have a child with Down syndrome someday, and that's a blessing from God, but it's, but it's not what you'd see as a normal child in a normal development. And so a normal child in a normal development, you want the hands to get further apart till the, till the point where you're just touching on the end of the fingers, right? And with a daughter, a father then at that point might be saying, uh, her mother and I do, or I do, when asked by the pastor who gives this woman. And then the fingers break. You see? And so this is what you want is emancipation. But let me tell you, that's a happy, sober time, but it's not the end. <laughs> it's not the end of your responsibility. It's not the end of your home being base. Because then your children are married and then you have a whole different context of helping them because you don't stop being their father and mother. You don't stop being the person who's trying to feed them as older than they are, trying to feed them and give them a context for the gospel. You don't stop because then they're facing new things. They're facing their child that's born and is at the mom's breast and then it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And you're gonna help them through that process. You're still doing the work. They're emancipated but your home hasn't stopped being a gospeling home, okay? And now you have grandchildren, you have a whole nother thing to deal with. Don't stop being the gospeling home when you have grandchildren. If God gives you, if God's given you grandchildren, you love your grandchildren and give them the gospel. And you discipline them the way you disciplined your children. You don't, you don't let them do things except for candy and stuff, but you don't let them do. You understand? The only, the only thing I'll give you is that at the end of the day or the change of the diaper, you can hand them to your daughter or your son, right? But the fact is you don't stop because then you become the help to your child as they raise their child. You stop when you die. And then you look for God to be able to say to you the benediction. That's what you want. You want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You had a gospeling home. You, you trained your children in the fear of the admonition of the Lord. You don't think those two things are connected? Well done, good and faithful servant. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart, depart from it. You think they're not connected? They're absolutely connected. You have to see it that way. This is where the work gets done. This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.